Over the last, what, two months now, uh, I've had a number of conversations with people, uh, both in church and in the community. And a lot of the conversations have one, people are feeling one thing that I've talked to. It's feeling overwhelmed. Overwhelmed at the change that's happening in our world today. Uh, Whether that is, uh, people have been saying they've been worried about political change, and sort of you've got Trump and you've got Brexit and you've got... uh, North Korea and terrorism and that kind of thing. Uh, people are worried about this growing division between the left and the right of politics, or this, this hatred and anger that's ensuing. Uh, I've talked to Christians who are worried about what it looks like to be a Christian in an ever-growing secular age that we live in, uh, what it looks like for their children or their nieces or their nephews in years to come. Uh, and I've talked to a number of people who say, where do we turn to? Where is God in all this? And in God's timing, we are starting the book of Daniel today, which answers all these questions head on. And so I'm looking forward to, as we kick off uh, this book, and we're going to see Daniel, who is a a courageous man in a chaotic world, and that in spite of all appearances, God is still in control. Hopefully on your seat you've got this booklet. There's a courageous uh, Daniel booklet. Uh, Please take that. That's yours. Uh, you can bring it each week. Uh, if you're a note taker, it's got some discussion questions in it as well. Moments of reflection. Uh, we're on page 12 today if you are a note taker. But uh, we're going to kick things off uh, with the first chapter of Daniel. And Anissa is going to read that to us. So if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to kick off with Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility young men without any physical defects, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time they were to serve in the king's court. Among them, from the descendants of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them other names. He gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official, Yet he said to Daniel, My lord the king assigned your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than those of the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had assigned, to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food, and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. 
At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to serve in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the diviner priests and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to begin by getting you to close your eyes. Don't worry, no one's going to take your wallet. Just close your eyes. And I want you to imagine this. You wake up in the middle of the night to a loud bang. The enemy has finally come. And they begin to destroy everything you love. Your family has been taken. Your workplace is being burnt. People are screaming. Some are dying. Suddenly you're grabbed and you're taken away. As you're being dragged away, you see your home in the distance. You'll never see it again. For what seems like months, you're being hauled away to who knows where. You're told that there you'll be brainwashed in the enemy's customs, in their beliefs, in their traditions. And once you arrive, you look around at this foreign place and you ask, where am I? And somebody whispers into your ear, welcome to Babylon. You can open your eyes. The first verse of Daniel is a very bleak and a very depressing verse. It reads like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. For God's people, the Jews... What we just did was not an imaginary exercise for them. It was reality. Where the superpower at the time, Babylon, had flexed its military muscle and enveloped this small country called Judah. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to obliterate the Jews. No, no, no. He wanted to keep this nation going. And so what he did was he put a puppet king, Zedekiah, on the throne. And he took the very best with him back to Babylon. The message was clear from Babylon. We dominate, don't mess with us. And if you are Daniel or a Jew, you're probably asking many questions, but three questions you're definitely asking is, what is happening to me? Another question you're probably asking is, how do I live out my faith? And thirdly, where is God in all this? So they're going to be our three questions as we go through Daniel chapter 1. So the first question, what is happening to me? Daniel and his mates, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are selected. Why? Because they fit the criteria. What's the criteria? They're young. They're without any physical defect. They're good-looking. They're suitable for instruction. They're wise, knowledgeable, perceptive, capable. I mean, that's quite the resume, isn't it? If psychologists are right, then uh, most of the women in this room are thinking, look, I wouldn't have been chosen. Someone else would. Whereas most of the men are probably thinking... I would have been chosen. That's, that just about describes me, I think, you know. But what this Babylon makeover involves is a, 
a few things. In verse 4, it says, to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. In other words, to indoctrinate them, to re-educate them, to think Babylonian. In verse 7, they're given new names, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Mishael, and Abednego, Babylonian names. In verse 5, they're given VIP treatment, royal food and wine to drink, and also a guaranteed job to serve in the king's court. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar knew about assimilation. He knew when you take a, a, a minority culture and put it in the majority culture, they'll, they'll always change to be like the majority culture. It just naturally happens. Uh, when my Nunnu, my Maltese grandfather, migrated from Malta in the 1930s, uh, he was Maltese through and through. Now, if you don't know much about Malta, just imagine Italians meets hobbits. That's sort of a good description of us. But uh, when he, so one thing about Maltese is we eat rabbits and we breed like rabbits. And so my Nunnu's sister had 16 children. True story. And, uh, but interestingly, when... Uh, he migrated out, uh, the next generation, so my dad's generation, uh, they were having not Maltese-style families, but average Aussie-style families, 2.5 kids. And uh, by the time the third generation comes, me, we barely know any of the Maltese language. Maltese is distant memory. Assimilation naturally happens. Talk to any migrant. But King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to speed the process up. He didn't want three generations, and he wanted three years of training. Why? What was the goal? So that when Daniel and his mates got to positions of influence, they would think Babylonian. They would do Babylonian. And Daniel and his friends are torn. They're torn of how do I trust God when Babylon looks so appealing? It looks so good. That's Daniel's context. That's what's happening to him. What about us? What's happening to us? You don't have to be religious uh, to realize that our culture is changing, that uh, Christianity is more and more at odds with secular society that we live in. And what, the, what we live in now is what we call a post-Christian era here in Sydney, here in Australia, here in the West, a post-Christian era. What that means is that Christianity used to be the norm in the sense that people would say they're Christian, they're ascribed to the Bible's values, uh, they attend church, that kind of thing, but no more. And what that means is most people are familiar with Christianity, and so it means they're either apathetic, who cares, or antagonistic, they hate it. And that's the kind of experience that either you or you'll come into contact with people have in Sydney. And let me just say two things. If you're a Christian here, it's important to realize that the Christian era, so to speak, that we've just been through, is not the norm. If you talk to most Christians in this world at present or throughout church history, it is not the norm to live in a society where Christianity is the norm, okay? We'll be living in the exception to the rule. And if you're a skeptic here today, you call yourself secular, then obviously secularism in the West is growing. But Christianity is also growing in parts of this world like China and India and even in Russia and Africa. So please don't think that Christianity is done and dusted. No, no, no. The new frontier for Christianity is in other parts of this world and it is growing at exponential rates. So please don't be naive to think it's done. 
So that's our context. We live in a post-Christian era. So the natural question then to ask is, well, how, if you're a Christian, how do you live out your faith? How do I live out my faith? And often when you're faced with opposition, particularly religious opposition, you sort of feel threatened, there are two tendencies. One of them is to conform, is to change what you do, change what you think, change what you say, to be like everyone else around you. You assimilate in. You're sort of like this chameleon. You blend in. Now, often what's motivated by this is, is love. You want to be tolerant. You want to be accepted. You want to love the people around you. The other response is to, different to conform, is to defy, is to stand up for truth. You know, hold on to it. Stick to your guns. This happens actively, so protest, arguing, that kind of thing, or passively, where you sort of isolate yourself off, sort of silo yourself, by yourself. So, and often what's motivating that is the love of truth. You know, we, we want to stand up for what's right. I wonder which you gravitate towards. Do you conform or do you defy? Your personality will have a lot to do with it. Let's see what Daniel does. In verse 8, he says this, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank. See, Daniel takes a stand. But the question is, why does he choose food and wine to make an issue about? Because he's happy for his name to be changed, and he's happy for the education, but why food and wine? Uh, some people think maybe it's a dietary thing. As a Jew, he wasn't allowed to eat certain foods that were forbidden in the Levitical law. But wine doesn't come under that category. Uh, other people think maybe it's religious uh, in terms of the food was sacrificed to idols, but surely vegetables would be sacrificed as well. Uh, I think it's a bit ambiguous in terms of why he makes food and wine uh, the issue. But Daniel may well have thought this. There is a danger. There is a danger that I am that all this overwhelming Babylonian information coming at me, there's a danger that I'm going to be Babylonian. But I need to make a, draw a line in the sand to say I'm different. That they may have changed my name, but they may, cannot change my identity. And so he makes food and wine issue to say I am different to those around me. A lot has changed, but this area marks that I am not like you. He doesn't conform. And if you're a Christian here today, when the world we live in is just as enticing as Babylon, and you'll be thrown a lot of views and perspectives and arguments which seem very appealing, but are actually anti what God is saying in His Word, in small ways, in big ways. And it's very tempting to change, to put them aside, to remain silent to conform and assimilate. I'll give you an example of what I mean. There's a guy called Gavin. Now, Gavin works in insurance. And uh, the guys he works with, they don't have much in common, but what they do is, what they do have in common is they cannot stand foreign aid. Uh, They believe that charity begins at home. What they really mean is it also ends there. But they cannot stand, particularly refugees, a bunch of bludgers, they say. And Gavin's a Christian. Uh, Gavin knows that Jesus cared for the poor and marginalized. Uh, Gavin personally has been known, personally, he was spiritually poor and yet Jesus had to be generously rich to him. But whenever the topic comes up, and it comes up a lot, whenever the jokes arise, Gavin remains silent. 
He doesn't say anything. He just lets it pass. Why is it that it is so hard to speak about your faith? Take a stand. Why is it so hard? Often because we, we want to love our neighbor, but deep down, it's because we're afraid of them. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm so petrified of what, what they'll think about me, what the jokes they'll say about me. What will they say behind my back? And let me just say this. If you think, look, I'm going to serve God in the future. I'm going to take a stand, stand up for what I believe in the future. The reality is you won't. If you're not willing to take a stand in small things, to speak about your faith in small areas, then you've got no chance of doing it in the future because we don't know what's coming. Daniel had no idea that chapters 3 and chapter 6 were coming, the fiery furnace and the lion's den. But because he was able to draw a line in the sand saying, I'm different from you in small ways, in food and wine, it gave him the courage to stand up in times when it really mattered. So Daniel took a stand. He held on to truth. But have a look at the way Daniel goes about it. This is important. Verse 8 also says, So Daniel asked permission from the chief official not to defile himself. Daniel didn't bang his hands on the table and protest, saying, Do you know who I am? I'm a God follower. You need to respect my rights. Now, what does he do? He's polite and he's humble. More than that, Daniel has uh, clearly got a good relationship with Aspenaz, the chief official. And Ashpenaz says not only that he's anxious, but that he shares with him the source of his anxiety. In verse 10, he says, My lord, the king has assigned you food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than those of the other younger men your age. You would endanger my life for the king. And so what does Daniel do? He suggests a 10-day trial in verse 12. What Daniel is doing there, he's not saying, well, who cares? You're a pagan. Get out of my way. No, he is respectfully living out his faith while also loving his neighbor. I'll give you an example of this done badly. Uh, Janine, a lady who works in a bank. And re- uh, recently the bank uh, said, as, we as a bank, we as an institution, are going to support marriage equality. So gay and lesbian marriage. And, uh, but Janine's a Christian. Uh, she believes the Bible sort of, uh, sorry, she believes the Bible saying it's between two people, man and a woman. But the way Janine goes about it is terrible. As soon as uh, the announcement was made, she went to social media bagging out her company. She did not speak and avoided people who were gay and lesbian in her workplace. Whenever she was in conversation, she would make sure the words abomination and evil and AIDS, AIDS, AIDS kept coming up. And then when she eventually resigned, she shamed a couple of people publicly. See, she held on to the Christian truth but she did so at the expense of loving her neighbor. She did so in a terrible way. No gentleness, no respect. Often when we want to stand for truth, we think loving your neighbor is an optional extra, and it's not. The two go part and parcel together. We speak a message of grace and love, but the problem is when we show little sign of it. But in Daniel, we see this beautiful balance of holding to the truth and yet loving his neighbor. 
of respecting God and yet respecting the people around him, of drawing a line of distinction in the stand and yet being distinctively other person-centered. He lives out 1 Peter 3, which is on the screen. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear. And so the third and final question is, where is God in all this? It's a natural question to ask if you're a Jew, you've been ripped from your homeland, you're in exile. But it's also a question that we're probably asking when you read chapter 1. Because God is only mentioned three times. In verse 2, verse 9, verse 17, sort of this, it feels like a minor character. Now that's not an accident. It's not like the writers, you know, forgot to put God more in the book, you know. But it's reflecting the, the normal reality of life where God seems absent, seems distant, and yet He is in control. He's orchestrating it all. That in spite of all repentances, God is in control. That He's in control of history. Verse two: The Lord handed Jehoiakim over of Judah over to him. That kings will come and go all because God deems it so. That God is in control of people. Verse 9, that God granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official. That there will be intimidating and influential people, but God is in charge of them. And that God is in control of us. Verse 17, that God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding. That God ultimately gives us the ability to do what we can do and what we can't do. But I love verse 21. I just love it. It ends the chapter by saying, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This little verse really packs a punch. I love it. Who's Cyrus? Who's King Cyrus? He's a Persian king. He's part of the empire that defeats the Babylonians, that defeats King Nebuchadnezzar. So why bring him up in chapter 1? Because he comes up in chapter 6. It's because of this. The author of Daniel is getting us to look up, to look beyond the present. Because often the people who are standing in front of us, the King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the media, that family member, that work colleague, the culture around us, it is so fearful, but we're so afraid of what they'll think. But Daniel is saying, look beyond the present to the fact that God is in control, that people will come and go, but God will be there throughout the ages, that his opinion matters most. It's like a child doing a dance recital in front of a large audience. And there she's dancing. And all the people are thinking various things, but she only cares about one opinion, and that's her dad. Because the audience at the end of the day will go home, but her dad will be there till the end. If you know that God is in control, that he will be the king of kings that lasts forever, then that will give you the ability to speak when you feel like remaining silent, to take a stand when you feel like sitting down and hiding. And what will stop you from being a jerk, from going about it, being rude and ignorant and not listening, is verse 2. It says, The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God, Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. You might be thinking, did you read the wrong verse there, James? That's the right verse. 
might be an odd one. But what it's referring to is when the Babylonians came and took over Judah, they went into the temple of God and they took the vessels, the, the cups and the goblets, and they took them and then they put them in the Babylonian temple. It's a clear statement. We have crushed your God. That if God's people are losers, then their God is a loser too. It's like at the Olympics. Uh, if, you know, if Australia loses, if the Olympian, Australian Olympian loses, then Australia loses. You know, if Ian Thorpe loses, we lose. Same idea. But what's important to know is that Daniel and the Jews are exiled, kicked out of their land, not by accident, but because they received warning after warning by God to repent, to stop worshipping other gods, to stop sinning, to stop walking out on Him. But yet God again and again warned them, no, do not do this, repent, trust me. And then eventually they were kicked out of the land. And yet, God is still with his people. He had every right to abandon them, to wash his hands, saying, I'm done. But he is still with his people. That he allows the vessels from his temple to be relativized and shamed and put into another one. That he is still with his people. Though they don't deserve it in the slightest, he is still there. Loving his enemies. Loving those people who do not deserve it. This is the God who Daniel worshipped. This is the God who was at the heart of who Daniel was. And if you're a Christian here today, then Jesus calls us to be in the world but not of the world. But he knew we wouldn't do a good job. He knew we'd either conform or would defy. So Jesus stands in our place. He's a representative, just like Daniel was. And he does, so, does it perfectly. Where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he, he did not conform to the, to the culture that surrounded him. He was different. And yet, he loved people radically so. People who are so different from him. And the beautiful example is when he's on that cross, dying for sinners, dying for enemies. And that's us. That is who Jesus is. You won't take a stand. You won't hold on to truth if you don't really believe that God will be there to the end, that his opinion matters most. And you won't genuinely love people who are different from you if you have not realized that Jesus loved us when we were his enemies. We were opposed to him. But in Jesus if Jesus is at the heart of who you are, if you put your trust in him, then that will give you the confidence, the courage, the motivation to speak the truth, but yet speak it with love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to apologize for the times that we as Christians have failed. We have either hurt the people around us, maybe even people here, where we have not spoken up, not shared about the wondrous hope and joy that you offer. For the times that we have not spoken with love, where we've been rude, where we've been disrespectful, and we have not listened. Please, Lord God, may we be more like Daniel, who is like you, Lord Jesus. May we be courageous to speak the truth, and yet speak it in love. Amen.